question was about what it means, what the instruction means to stay in the body, especially uh, outside of the sitting time, just in moving about. I would stay quite simple with it, in the sense of uh, feeling the most predominant sensation in whatever you're doing. So, for example, usually as we're moving about, the movement itself is predominant. So you can either feel a particular part of the body as it's moving, for example, when you're reaching, the feeling of the arm. In walking about, you could feel the movement of the legs, or sometimes just feel the whole body moving. It's like the whole body moving through space. Uh, there's no one right way to do it. Any one of those ways, in terms of staying connected to the actual feeling of it. It's very helpful because when you're with that, then the mind's not lost in some mind-created world. And it's very good training for living mindfully outside in the world, because we move about in our lives. I think that if it's a quickly passing thought that doesn't take you away, you don't particularly have to stop walking. You just see the thought go by. But if you've been lost, and if there's a kind of barrage of thoughts, it can be very helpful to stop and really pay attention, noting the either just thinking or the particular kinds of thought it is, you know, of planning or judging or whatever. One of the things that I find interesting to do in terms of illuminating illuminating the nature of our life is to make a point of recognizing the difference between our experience when we are lost in what I call these mind-created worlds and the simplicity of simply being just in the moment's experience. Because often we may, we may notice that we're lost, whether we stop or don't stop in, in either case, and just bring our mind back, but not really pay attention to the difference in the quality of our experience in those two situations. It's so strikingly different that it becomes a very positive reinforcement to stay awake. <laughs> because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and the things we spend probably most of our lives in these worlds that are created that have no reality other than of simply being an unnoticed thought. So, so it's to take the time to appreciate what's going on. Do you follow? And it's, it's really quite energizing. 
and, and we begin just by practicing that uh, we begin to get less and less seduced you know by, by those thought forms because we've recognized so clearly what it is that it's just this <laughs> mental creation Right. 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 And, and just appreciating the phenomenon of it. You know, what it is that's happening. You know, it's expressed very well in a this, this sort of a little Taoist saying, which just captures, I think, the essence of your question, where it says, "Non-action is not inaction." To really begin to see the difference, inaction means pulling back from experience, not doing anything. Non-action is that quality of mind <coughs> that's responsive without being reactive. So, for example, there can be a situation that calls for a response, that really calls for some kind of action. We can either do it from a place of balance, of understanding, of wisdom, of stillness, or we can do it because we're identified with our own reaction to it. Those are two very different places and have very different outcomes. Now, mostly for people with untrained minds, untrained in awareness, mostly we are identified very much with our own reactions to things. And so we become identified with the anger, identified with the depression, identified with whatever, and we're not responding from a place of clarity. We're not responding from a place of compassion. Which, ha- which happens when it's neutral or slightly annoying? Uh, uh. I think frustration is a slightly more active, activated, excited, irritated kind of feeling, whereas boredom is in the way I understand it, it's sort of more flat. You know, disinterest, that boredom is a kind of disinterest, and frustration is a, what's the word? There's an abrasive quality. It's not simply disinterest, it's like we dislike it. We dislike what's going on in some way. 
But anyway, keep looking and uh, you could write the book on the difference. <laughs> I mean, all of, the, all of this is really self-discovery. It really is, you know, it's just whatever, whatever particular you know, mind state is your thing, you can become the expert in it <laughs> of, of these fine distinctions, which are really quite useful. And, In different traditions of Buddhism, uh, there's a variety of uh, approaches to the dream state. Uh, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's really a whole dream yoga, and there's a very systematic technique for working with becoming lucid in dreams. And in Vipassana, there really isn't. It's not. It's not really part of this tradition. Um, what happens is that as the mindfulness gets strong through the day, at a certain point, quite naturally, uh, at least at times, the awareness of the mindfulness begins to come into the dream state and you do know you're dreaming. There's no particular thing you should do with it, but it just happens. Um, I mean, there are many techniques of <coughs> inducing lucid dreams. Um, of course, another possibility is uh, to sleep so little that there's hardly any dreaming. <laughs> you know, where you just, you're out and then three or four hours later, you're back on the cushion. Which can also happen, you know, as the practice goes on and you have more and more energy. Uh, if after the retreat, as I said, there are, there's a lot written about that. But within, within this context, there's really, uh, you don't really have to do much. Well, I think there, I think there actually is a wholesome kind of disgust, you know. And it's all. We we have to be careful with language because each word has so many different connotations, and people hear it in so many different ways. But when you read the Buddhist texts, there's a lot of that of sort of disgust with samsara. It's not disgust really, it, it's not the disgust of aversion, and that's where the language gets a little tricky, but it's <laughs> uh, 
I think I mentioned in one of the last question periods, just that, that point in the practice in a variety of situations where the mind says, enough. You know, just enough already of this. And it's not, again, it's not with judgment, it's not with aversion, but it is with a kind of strength of clear seeing, this is not going anyplace, this is unwholesome, and we use our sort of wisdom. So you have to look in your own mind to see whether that feeling is really on the wholesome side of clear seeing, or it's mixed in with a kind of aversion. If you have energy, stay up. I mean, one of the great gifts of a retreat is you don't have to get up and go to work the next day. <laughs> you know, this is, if, if you have energy and you're practicing all night, so you sleep a little bit in the morning. You know, and that's, you can really go with the energy when it's there. Uh, that would be my suggestion. I'll say on the other hand now. <laughs> on the other hand, <laughs> if for whatever reason you do that, you know, you really get into your own rhythm of practice and your hours become wildly fluctuating and you find that in some way disconcerting, throwing you off balance, you know, where you're not able just to go with the rhythm of it, but you're finding it's really disturbing in some way, so then I would say, don't do it, you know, and follow the schedule. But I would give it a shot. Because there are times in the practice, you know, and it, it may be starting to happen, it may happen later in the retreat, it may happen in your next three-month retreat, but there are times when we really just plug into this energy source where our need for sleep is tremendously diminished. You know, it's not, an, it's not something that we're forcing in ourselves, it's just we're awake, we're, we're energized. I think it's, I think it's very helpful just to, to keep the practice going, then it can get very powerful. There's Upandita told one story which is very hard to believe, but It's a presumption of truth. <laughs> he said there were monks who would come to the center in Burma who didn't sleep for three months. That was impressive. <laughs> you know, I never came close to that, but uh, definitely had the experience of you know, lots of energy coursing through and then just practicing a lot.
Yeah, I, I think that would be okay. You could do a few different things at that time. If you're going in and out of a drowsiness while you're sitting, you could sit with your eyes open to help stay, maintain an alertness. You could do more walking meditation, you know, at that time. So you could really use the energy in a, in a good way. question in the back? So asking also about sleeping and different sleeping patterns. If, for example, there's a need for six or seven hours sleep, uh, could one just as well either take it all at a stretch or split it up into two sessions of three or four hours apiece? I think generally it's better to sleep at a shot and then to stay wakeful the whole time. The, the whole rest of the time. Um, one thing you could experiment with, and I've done this a lot and found it very helpful, it's like find what feels the right balance for you. Where, of enough sleep where you wake up and you feel wakeful and energetic and you basically have good energy through the day. Okay, And it will be different for each one. Some people need less, some people need a little more. Then after some time, week, two weeks, three weeks of staying at that level, what I found very helpful is just to begin reducing it in small increments. So if, for example, you're sleeping seven hours or six hours, try sleeping six and a half or five and a half. And what I found is by reducing it in, or even 15 minutes, but by reducing it in a gradual way, it actually became quite easy and natural to sleep less and still feel rested and energized. So you want to work with it, you know, but you can do it in, in quite an organic way. It could be helpful to do. Um, I would definitely start including in what you notice times of desire and aversion, because these are major <laughs> these are major forces in one's life, and I think it's helpful to really become familiar with them as they arise so that you can be mindful rather than being lost in them. That's different than taking a sitting and noticing, really making the note through the sitting with each object of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That as just out of interest. You, know, you could either take a sitting or part of a sitting 
and do that, just so you get sensitized or attuned to it. Uh, doesn't have to be a regular practice. Uh, with intention, again, it's helpful to begin to bring that in. There are many more intentions in the day than you will ever notice. Because there's an intention before everything. But you can begin to notice those intentions before predominant movements, predominant actions. And it's a refinement. It really helps to just make the mind, the awareness, more clear, more precise. And you begin to see a very important link between the mind and the body. You see that the body by itself doesn't move. And this, in turn, begins to reveal a lot about the meaning of anatta, or selflessness. So it's, it's a, how do I say? The awareness of intention is a point of experience that opens up to many realms of understanding. But do it again from a place of interest in understanding how things are working rather than as a task. And if you do it as a task, the mind gets very tired. If you do it just because you're interested to understand, how is it that the body moves? One time, this was years ago, I was, a, I was practicing in India, I was up in the mountains. And I was just taking a walk on the road outside where I was living. just stopped in the middle of the road and I was waiting to see what it was that would make me start moving again. You know, I was standing there and kind of, there was this little blip of an intention to walk which would come, but it wasn't nearly strong enough to actually get me to move. So I just stood there for the longest time. And it was interesting to see what finally was strong enough to initiate the movement. I'll give you a clue. This is a big clue. <laughs> Very big. Which you could really experiment with in, in terms of investigating. It's said that movement masks dukkha. That movement masks dukkha, suffering. So just to observe that. You know, if that's true in your experience, how often it's true, and that itself is a very powerful insight you know, into what motivates us in our various activities and into our relationship to the experience of dukkha. Now, how much of it is just quick, unthinking avoidance. You know, you can see it in the sitting, and this is something you might also do. Just the slight shifts of, of position you might make. You know, they really might even go unnoticed. Just It's really a masking of dukkha. Something gets a little uncomfortable, we don't want to feel it, so we shift a little bit. Sometimes, 
Did we talk about kind of vow sittings or you know, where you where you just take a period of time? It could be a whole sitting if you're really experienced, you know, and you it could be for half an hour, it could be for fifteen minutes, whatever frame of time works for you. Take a period of time where you make the vow, the resolution, I'm not gonna move. Let me die. <laughs> really, I mean with that kind of strength. See what happens. See what reveals itself. It's very powerful, you know, and it strengthens the practice tremendously to do that. Again, do it for the period of time that for now seems workable, and you can begin to extend the time. When I, right at the beginning of my meditation, when I was studying with this teacher, Goanka in India, part of his courses was three of the hour sittings during a day he called vow hours. It was intense, <laughs> because especially at that time, it was toward the beginning of my practice, and just incredible pain, you know, but he was really strong that people do it. Uh, it was particularly <laughs> frustrating, because he would start the vow hour, and he'd start it with chanting, and then he'd leave the room, and particularly in this one sitting, he'd go off into his room, which was just off the meditation hall, and have tea and be chomping on an apple. <laughs> I'd be sitting there with this nail going through my knee. So, okay, last question. I'm going to be grateful for you to sit for two hours. <laughs> you know, every way, uh, every way is a good way at some times for some people. I, it was very hard. When I did that, it was very hard. I learned a lot from it. Other people, it might not be the right approach for where they are in the practice. So there's no kind of general rule. It's definitely good in the amount of time you sit. It's arbitrary. There's nothing holy about one hour or two hours or 45 minutes. It's just it's to create some form where there's a discipline of being willing to be with things that we might not ordinarily be with. You know, and so people find the form that really works for them. Okay. Specifically, that's catching you and then coming back. Judging's a good one. <laughs> Don't try too hard. Don't give up. <laughs>
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.